And this is increment 122 of our Hebrews series. We see Jesus. And I've already written up here the passage, identifying the passage where we're going. And it's really Hebrews 5.1, but we'll go to 4.14 to catch up. Pas Archiarius, which means every archpriest. Every archpriest. For from now on, the writer sets up a brilliant use of the law of similarity versus dissimilarity or the law of comparison and contrast to contrast every archpriest with the one and only messianic archpriest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lots of comparisons, lots of contrast, weight falling heavily on contrast. And we're going to be putting into play the word that is rarely used, monadic, which means once or one and one only, or we could even perhaps say unique, monadic, the monadic messianic priest versus pas archiarius, every archpriest. This contrast is going to go on through the almost the rest of the homily into the central section, which will be really 7.1 to 10.18. That's the central section. And that section itself is built up into three concentric circles, a circle within a circle within a circle. And in the center of the center of the center is Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is one of the hallmarks of any canonical scriptural writing as we already saw in Revelation, as we already saw in Romans, in fact, all of Paul's epistles. So we'll get moving after a word of prayer. Father, we're always dependent upon you to direct us in the way we should go in the study of the word, because there's many ideas that can pop into our head, but we only want to follow the ones that you put there and the directions that you set before us. So we pray that through your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace, You will guide us into all the truth that's embodied in Jesus and that's found in this remarkable heavenly homily. And may it be used, Father, for incentive and for momentum for all the hearers and all the listeners to advance and continue to fight the good fight and ultimately finish the course and receive that crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the faithful judge will place upon our heads. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, recapping 4.14 to 15. Therefore, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast the confession. The confession he's talking about is our confession that Jesus is the Son of God, and all that, that all that, that implies, all that that entails. For we do not have an archpriest who can't sympathize with us, and I've added in brackets, and assist us in our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach with outspokenness the throne of grace, so that we may take hold of mercy and find grace for timely help. Now this throne of grace, as we've been seeing, is where the answer is found to a famous petition of the Lord's Prayer, 
lead us not into temptation, which itself <clears throat> is a misleading translation. And we've dealt with this before. It's better to translate that petition as don't let us cave in under pressure. So it's usually translated, and I think a little misleadingly, lead us not into temptation. Don't let us cave in, or we could say crack under the pressure, is a perfect petition for the Christian community at any time in its history during the clash of the ages. During this clash of the ages, there is indeed great pressure applied upon advancing Christians. So don't let us crack under that pressure is certainly a wonderful petition. Moving through the agona, as it's called, the we get the word agony, of course, from this. It can refer to an athletic contest or it can refer to a gladi gladiatorial contest or any kind of series of challenges, physical challenges, within a stadium, agona, A-G-O-N-A. -A. So it's a perfect petition for Christian community during the agona that is experienced during this clash of the ages. <clears throat> for there are two ages, one age being the evil age on its way out, and the other being the messianic age, which was initiated with what we call the Christ event. His incarnation, his life of obedience to the Father, culminating in his obedience to the death of the cross, his then death, burial, resurrection, ascension and exaltation, and that initiated the endless messianic age. So there is a clash of the ages involving great pressures as the kingdom of God is coming in, as the will of God is being done on earth as it is in heaven, there is profound and, in fact, enormous resistance from the powers that be that are being stripped of their authority. So moving through the agona that is set before us, as Hebrews 12.1 puts it, we need to be approaching the throne of grace where we may take hold of mercy from our merciful archpriest and find grace for timely help, that being the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, our faithful archpriest, Hebrews 2.17. Jesus' sympathetic assistance gives us power in the midst of the tests and temptations that we must face in our weakness. His strength is perfected in weakness. We know this from Paul's adventure in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. The strength of Jesus Christ, which is his grace that he dispenses from the throne of grace, is made perfect in weakness. That is, it hits its full ignition and power in weakness. He strengthens us in times when our natural human weakness could normally lead us to sin under the influence of temptation. And we are not tempted by God. We are not tempted by Jesus Christ. We are tempted by the tempter who is the accuser of the brethren. We're tempted by our own Adamic ontology and by our own lusts and desires. So we, in, we have this influence called temptation. Jesus never caved in to temptation or pressure to disobey or disbelieve his father, despite the grueling ordeal that he endured. And he desires to gift us with his own perseverance. 
He desires to gift us with his own endurance and help us with his own power. When we're in the middle of a great test that involves temptation to sin, we don't need to hear about the grace of eternal salvation. Not right at the moment, anyways, as important of a doctrine as that is. We don't even really need to be reminded of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, even though that's a wonderful doctrine, but not right at the moment of that test. We need to approach the throne of grace at that moment to find help right at that moment and in that fight. And we will find it because Jesus Christ is our great arch priest. He will save us to the uttermost. Yes, that's understood in Hebrews 7.25. But he will also, he's also standing by to save in the middle of the agona, to assist and support in the middle of the agona and to empower us when we're tempted to sin or to return to the Adamic ontology of our former self. Hebrews itself is the help. Hebrews is the help that is sent by Jesus who is able to help those who were being tested and experiencing temptation to sin, in their case, by returning to the practices of a divinely canceled system. It's no big deal to get canceled by people, but you don't want to be canceled by God. God canceled a whole arrangement that ended with the Christ event, an arrangement involving animal sacrifices, a covenant involving the priesthood called Levitical or Aaronic. God canceled it, and so to return to what God has canceled is not a wise course. In fact, for them, it's sin. As for us, as we've begun to see, their temptation, that's the initial readers or recipients or addressees of this homily, their temptation was intensified by the mistaken notion that they were without an archpriest. That's the whole point. They were being charged by their contemporaries with, look, you've left this system of animal sacrifices. You've left off the habit of temple sacrifices. Therefore, you don't even have an archpriest. You Christians don't have an archpriest. And so this left a lot of Christians feeling high and dry and increased their temptation to return to that abrogated or divinely canceled system. So they were laboring under the false notion that they did not have a high priest, a mistaken notion. So temptation itself can be tough to face. It's even tougher if you're already laboring under false concepts or ignorance of what God has for you in that specific moment. Sometimes it's just a providential way out. And I've seen that many times and on many occasions. Throughout the history of the righteous, the Lord sent his word to heal them. Psalm 107 is a psalm that's worth reading, reading through carefully. But in 107.20, which is the Septuagint 106.20, he sent his word to heal them and to deliver them from their destructions, plural. In some cases it says from their corruption. Hebrews belongs within that history, the history of the righteous, 
and the history of God sending his word to heal. For the Lord sent this homily to a community of believers in Jesus, the Son of God, to deliver them from returning to offering temple sacrifices, a habit which would have led them ultimately to participate in the feasts in Jerusalem. Now consider the historical background here. This is written in the mid-60s A.D., Ultimately, that would have led them to Jerusalem, or if they already were living there in Jerusalem, to remain in Jerusalem, and they may well have been in that city of old Jerusalem at the time of the abomination of desolation. That is, when the armies of Rome moved in to lay siege to the city. This would have been certain destruction for them, and so the word Hebrews is literally sent, if you think about it on its literal historical level, it could have actually been an urgent plea, come out of that city, get out of there, for here we have no continuing city, says Hebrews thirteen fourteen, in the very climactic chapter. So could it be, and this is just a question, but even if it's not the case, there is a fantastic incentive lodged here. Could it be that for these addressees, the initial readers of this homily, to go to Jesus outside the camp in Hebrews 13, 13, and to bear his reproach, that it meant for them not only to cease operating in the Levitical sacrificial system, but to go to Christ outside of Jerusalem itself, which is where he was crucified outside its gates. Because as the writer says, for here we have no continuing city. We don't have a city that's going to endure. Could he be speaking about here being Jerusalem? And could he be speaking on the verge of Jerusalem's collapse and the apocalyptically significant destruction of the temple? Now, I'm going to take this on a little more as we go through this epistle, if the Lord is willing. But the list of exploits by those called the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 came to a peak and a climactic moment with the mention of Rahab. We've already looked at this before. I've looked at it in great detail in Revelation. It says that Rahab, by faith, didn't die with those who were disobedient. And that means when Jericho was sacked, Jericho came down and collapsed under a mass destruction. So after Rahab's deliverance over and against the destruction or the perishing of those who disobeyed in Hebrews 11.31, the PT then says, and what more can I say? In other words, he had hit a place where a woman of faith was spared when a city was destroyed and killed all the disobedient in it. Not only that, but it said that once she was delivered and saved and her whole family, brothers and sisters, parents, etc., were saved, the Israelites brought them to their encampment and set them up to live outside the camp. Joshua 6.23 
So the two images of someone being spared when a city was destroyed and being brought to being outside the camp, both of which converged in Rahab, then the writer says, what more can I say? In other words, I just hit you with the prime point of this whole homily. By faith, you can, dis- you can avoid the destruction that's coming to the disobedient in a city. So there's a lot of weight behind this argument. And I think it's something we should tackle more than once and look at more thoroughly in the future. And I'm not going to do that today. But after Rahab's deliverance over and against the destruction or perishing of those who disobeyed or did not have faith... He says, what more can I say? As if to say that Rahab's survival of the destruction of her city by faith, the sharpest point on what he was trying to say to his readers had come. Her deliverance, along with her whole family, during the mass destruction of Jericho, coupled with her coming to live outside the camp, of the Hebrew community in Joshua 6.23 hits very close to home to the initial addressees of this homily. And these addressees were those people whom God intended to deliver from Jerusalem's imminent destruction. To whom the PT writes, let's then go to Christ outside the camp bearing his disgrace. For here we have no continuing city. Hebrews 13, 13, and 14. So what does it mean to bear Jesus' disgrace? We're going to move up to that doctrine sometime. It means to take up his cross. It's to be crucified to the cosmos, the zeitgeist, the world spirit as it exists now in whatever time you live. That's in resistance to God. And so once again, it is to be crucified to the zeitgeist as manifested in our own time and for us to be dissociated from evil as it's currently being expressed in its current vogue or form. For us... The metaphor of going to Jesus outside the camp is to go to Jesus and live outside of ourselves. Outside, that is, of the Adamic ontology. Outside of the entire way of being and livingness that is like Adam immediately after his act of disobedience. To go to Christ outside the camp is to find him as our great archpriest who is ready to assist all of us as we bear his reproach in a world which even now in our time is ever more intolerant of Christ, of Christianity, of the Bible, and of the virtues and values that it espouses. Hebrews, then, is all about not only dispelling the mistaken notion that Christians had no archpriest, but it's all about putting forth the reality that they, and that includes we, have a superior archpriest, 
than every archpriest of the former order. Here's where we take up with Hebrews 5.1. Every archpriest, every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings. Every archpriest is. Pas Archiarius. Every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God. Please notice the horizontal orientation on behalf of human beings and the vertical orientation in things that pertain to God. To offer both gifts and offerings for sins. That's the job of the archpriest. To offer both gifts and offerings for sins. And who is able to deal gently, it says, and that's my translation of this passage, which I've explained before and will again, who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray, since he himself experiences weaknesses or weakness in many ways. Every archpriest then should have a certain tone about him. He has to receive sin offerings from people, his contemporaries, who were led astray and sinned in their ignorance. Therefore, this man has to deal gently with them. He can't lambaste them for sinning. He can't be disgusted with them. He cannot judge them. He cannot upbraid or reprimand or embarrass them. He has to, and even if he feels disgust for the sins they've committed, he has to moderate his emotions. The moderation of emotions is different from the elimination of emotions, which the Stoics tried to do. That's not only unrealistic, it's almost inhuman. Jesus never eliminated his own emotions or his own passions. He moderated them so that he never expressed anger in, in a sinful way, never expressed passion for the house of his father in a sinful or overreacting way. Jesus moderated his emotions while he was here in his life on earth. He didn't eliminate them. And it's, a very, it's very dangerous, in fact, to teach people that they shouldn't ever have emotion or they shouldn't ever have feelings that's Stoicism, it's not Christianity. So every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. And who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray since he himself experiences weaknesses or weakness in many ways. There's a parallel to this in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, where if someone is overtaken by a fault or a sin, you who are spiritual go and restore such a one. But keep in mind your own position, lest you also be tempted. In other words, if you're going to go restore someone who has sinned, you don't go with judgmentalism. You don't go with a spirit of self-righteousness because a haughty spirit always precedes a fall. You go in a spirit of humility and you offer them a way of grace and a way of mercy and tell them of the love of God, etc. Verse 3 goes on to say in Hebrews 5, and because of this weakness, meaning the weakness of every archpriest, 
and that means which sometimes leads to sin, in the context I've even put that in brackets, just as he offers sacrifices for the sins of the people, he must also do so for himself. This has an allusion to Leviticus 16:23 to 24, the Aaronic priests, since they were sinners when they offered sin sacrifices. They did so not only for the people of Israel, but for themselves and for their families, because they too were sinners. So he must also do so for himself. That's talking with generically every archpriest. This will be seen in contrast to the monadic or the one and only messianic priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who knew no sin. Therefore, he did not offer sin sacrifice, a sin sacrifice for himself. But he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people and not only the people of Israel as we're going to find out but all the people for all time that's what I call a diachronic salvation as well as a universal salvation so again you come up against this again in Hebrews 9 7 where the Levitical or every archpriest of the Levitical order or the Aaronic order had to offer sacrifices not just for the people who brought their offerings, but for himself and for his family as well. So Hebrews 5 starts out dealing with every archpriest, and this is a generic category or a general category. It lays emphasis on the archpriests of the Aaronic or the Levitical order of priests, Aaron meaning Aaronic, meaning related to Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, or Levitical, related to Levi, his grandson, because of the passing on of the priestly order from father to son. So again, the Aaronic or Levitical order of priest is spoken here, emphasized here, and it continues what was hinted at already and what will become greatly detailed doctrine consisting of a comparison and a contrast between every archpriest of the Levitical order of archpriests and the Christ, the unique archpriest, our great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, passed through the torn veil of his flesh into the region of the holiest of holy places in the heavens, at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. So the PT here deploys the law of similarity and dissimilarity. The law of similarity and dissimilarity is what Paul used in his Adam-Christ analogy. And the, this guy uses it, this pastor uses it, in a comparison contrast with every priest with the monadic or unique messianic priest Jesus the son of God now the PT this is surprising because Paul says he never used rhetoric he didn't use rhetoric at least in Corinth there were other times when he may have he didn't use rhetoric but he simply preached the gospel here the PT is using the art of rhetoric and so it's surprising that we see that because he uses it extremely skillfully and greatly effectively. We're talking about an art that was employed and maybe even helped to be invented by Aristotle, 
going back to Plato and then on to Quintilian and other famous rhetoricians. So it's surprising when Paul said he didn't use rhetoric, he didn't say you can never use rhetoric because this PT is using the skillful rhetoric that is used to persuade an audience or even to dissuade them from a sinful course of action. So the law of similarity and dissimilarity is deployed here. Also deployed is the rhetorical art of auxasis, which we saw before, which is a comparison not by saying one thing is bad and another thing is good, but by showing the greatness of one thing and showing the superior greatness of another thing. We're now seeing the superior greatness of Jesus over Aaron, as we saw the superior greatness of Jesus over the great Moses and Jesus over even the principal angels. So, there's an effective rhetorical strategy going throughout here. All of this is adding up to, don't go back there. You do have a great archpriest, and he's infinitely superior to the archpriests of the old order, who themselves had their time and were great in their time. So the PT deploys the law of similarity and dissimilarity in an effective way in this homily. Up to chapter 5, there have been the first intimations of this comparison contrast. So interchangeably, I'm using the word comparison slash contrast with the law of similarity and dissimilarity. They're, they can be interchangeable. Chapter Up to chapter 5, there have been intimations of this comparison and contrast. Chapter 5, 1 to 10, begins a serious development of this doctrine. And it's presented, really, especially in 7, 1 to 10, 18, with the law of similarity and dissimilarity. But the author, and here's where there is a pause in the action, a very important one. The author, with typical pastoral concern and with surprising rhetorical skill, stops after verse 10. Now, we're going to continue with 5, 3 to 10, but I want you to just kind of get aware of the larger structure here. He stops after verse 10, and he inserts a very extensive hortatory passage, an exhortation involving the most, one of the most severe warnings in all of Scripture, 6, 4 through 8 of Hebrews, matched only by Hebrews 6, 26, or Hebrews 10, rather, 26 to 31. And so he stops and he takes a long time, really, from 5.11 all the way through to, and maybe including, Hebrews 6.20 before he starts in 7.1, the central concentric circles that make up the center part of this homily, at the center of the center of which is Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified 
whom we see. So the passage that he inserts, 5.11 to 6.20, moves creatively and seamlessly back to a splendid exposition again. Remember, exhortation, exposition, balanced. He moves back into a splendid exposition on the archpriesthood of Jesus, the Son of God, in the central part of the homily, at the center of the center of which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. So like Paul... This PT speaks of nothing that doesn't involve or devolve to that all-important theme. Echoes of Paul, I determined to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified among you. So for this reason alone, Hebrews should be considered not only canonical. They fought over the canonicity of this in the early centuries, just like they did with Revelation. This homily should not only be considered canonical, but a voluble, V-O-L-U-B-L-E, instance of a New Testament document that is valuable and vital. How do you like that alliteration? It is a voluble instance of a New Testament document that is valuable and vital for all time and for every time period. It should be noted that this doctrine has such importance, the doctrine he's about to approach of the great archpriesthood of Jesus Christ, so important, so significant, that the Holy Spirit takes a significant portion of this discourse up to prepare the ground to receive the seed of this truth. He wants to make sure the listeners are ready for this, and he doubts that they all are. So this passage is preparatory. It tees up the next phase and the central phase. Nothing, and I want to close this message today with this, nothing is more resistant to the reception of advanced insights than a mind closed by bias. Whether the individual bias of egoism or sometimes of persistent anxiety or group bias by which a group is a legend in its own mind and has not yet seen that its time is up the time of its effectiveness and usefulness is gone. Or the general bias, which is extremely generally manifested today, a general bias by which people presume the omnicompetence, not omnipotence, here's a word for you in a vocabulary, omnicompetence. It is a word, incidentally. Omni, I have to sometimes say, yes, that's a word. Omnicompetence. Competence. It means when someone thinks they can do it all. They are competent, but they're omnicompetent. A totalitarian state, for example, like tyrannical socialism or fascism, is an omnicompetent state. The state does everything for you, but enslaves you in the process. And so there is what is called an omnicompetent bias, the bias of omnicompetence, that all you need is common sense in this life. 
All you need is common sense. Well, let me tell you about our great archpriest. No, I've got common sense. I don't need to hear. Well, let me tell you about the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. Oh, no, I already hold the view of my group, which doesn't know yet that it's outlasted its usefulness, but calls itself Christian or calls itself this or that. So there's bias that closes the mind to necessary and saving insights even. So there's the individual bias of egoism, which is the strange disease that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. Or there's group bias by which a group is a legend in its own mind. Or the general bias by which people presume the omnicompetence of human common sense. That means that just having common sense is enough for this life. And it's enough for the so-called spiritual life. Every pastor has come up against walls of bias, biases that involve ignorance coupled with sometimes with arrogance. And these biases can only be dissolved by love. Hatred involves bias. Love dissolves bias. So, as a hint of things to come, consider Hebrews 5, every archpriest. We're back to the beginning. Archierus, selected from human beings, is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God. On behalf of human beings is a horizontal orientation in things to pertain to God is a vertical orientation, cuts right through the omnicompetence or the pre presumed omnicompetence of common sense and of human self-sufficiency. We're going to do some more on this on the next increment, which would be increment 123. And then I'm going to continue on this law, the law of similarity and dissimilarity between every archpriest and the monadic or one and only messianic archpriest, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for yet another dispensation of your grace from the throne of grace by which we can be incentivized as Christians in our own time. We know that we're engaged in a fight, and it's a good fight. We know that we're running a race that's been set before us, and it's a race that you have set before us. We know that there's a prize at the end of this race. So grant us the grace and the perseverance from the throne of grace to persist on to that mark of the prize of the ever upward, always onward call of God in Christ Jesus. May you permit us to go on to completion, to perfection in the sense of a perfect knowledge or a well-rounded knowledge of Jesus Christ as our great archpriest. We ask it in his name. Amen.